Welcome to Better Shelves, a podcast from the Bookshelf Limited. We help aspiring authors to create life-changing non-fiction books. We're based in Birmingham, but we work with authors across the globe, and our mission is to make the world a better place through books. Hi, Jim. Thanks for joining us on the Better Shelves podcast. Uh, good afternoon. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Yeah. So first thing, congratulations on your recent book, your second book, Clever Enough to be Stupid. Can you tell us a little bit about it? What inspired you to write it? Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all. Frustration was the reason that I wrote it, I think. So I actually started writing it after I'd given you, I think, my revamped draft of my first book. But it was born of frustration, really, because I generally speaking, I, I seem to come across this never-ending stream of people that seem so convinced that they know what they're talking about. And, and invariably, I tend to find that most people don't know what they're talking about. So that was kind of the impetus to write this book, uh, Clever Enough to be Stupid. Yeah, that's obviously something you probably encounter a lot in your area of work as well. I suppose so academics, are, for anyone listening, being in the academic field, so to speak, a lecturer across a couple of different disciplines. Yeah, you, there can almost be a bit of a pissing contest when it comes to academia. You know, who knows more than whom or who's written this paper or that paper. But yeah, just generally... I work with a fair amount of coaches and teachers and such. And it's this kind of vociferous nature that people have where they just have such a great degree of confidence in their assertions and what they believe to be the case to be true or to be what should happen and what people should do. If you interrogate that just a little bit, you find out that actually they don't know a huge amount about the topic. They're not as well read as they might be portraying. And uh, yeah, so that was the whole remit for the book in the first place. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, actually, that in today's society, you talk a lot about how people seem to be rewarded for having really strong opinions rather than sitting on the fence than how social media buys into that. Like on Twitter, you've got 180 characters or something. So actually, the more forceful you are in your opinions and the more fixed you are in your ideas, almost the easier it is to put your opinions out there on social media. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You could argue that perhaps we are initiating that change towards people being a bit more sure of themselves. Maybe they're not more sure of themselves, but it's just the, I don't know, we're being conditioned into a way of expressing ourselves potentially. So it's one of the things I talk about in one of the chapters. It shows how well I know the book, doesn't it? One of the chapters about this idea of how you're almost looked upon in a disparaging way by saying that you haven't committed yourself to one belief or another. Like if you sit there and think, well, actually, I'm not too sure about this. So I'm somewhere in between. You're a fence sitter and therefore you can't be trusted. Or this whole idea that you can trust people more if they stick to their guns. And I've always struggled with that mentality because if you stick to your guns why it's seen as an admirable trait I don't know because you might be wrong if you stick to your guns of being wrong it's the equivalent of someone saying two plus two equals five and and then you say well actually I think it's four well no I'm sticking to my guns I'm going to stick with five it's ridiculous when you put it that way people tend to see it but when you put it in other ways whether it be political affiliation or what the government should do about covid or whatever the topic might be somehow sticking to your guns is seen as an admirable trait and I've never really understood that yeah same here and I think we talked a lot as well haven't we about being able to sit on the fence about something and say I don't know actually I don't know enough about this topic to weigh in or just admitting that you don't have an opinion I feel like everyone these days has an opinion on everything and when you don't it's like oh why don't you have an opinion on that the need to kind of consider things as opinions and again it's another thing that I've written about in this book but 
can you have discussions without it being exhibiting your beliefs or your opinions to try to overcome other people's you know the, the idea of like the ancient greek dialectics where you have discussions to explore a topic further to work to think something through i think is the more literal definition of dialectic to think something through and get closer to truth whatever truth might be than you were previously as opposed to i'm just going to assert my opinions on things to try to win, which is what a debate normally is. So, yeah, I'm much more in the dialectic camp. However, I guess a problem with that is you need to be surrounded by people that are also willing to do the same. Again, hence why I wrote things the way I wrote it, in that I'm trying to encourage people to be a little less debate-oriented and a little more dialectic-oriented. Whether or not it will do anything, I, I don't know. Well, it definitely worked for me. I take more notice now of when I feel like, oh, hang on, am I entering into a debate here and especially on social media I think it's really easy to get drawn into those kinds of debates and actually everyone ends up annoyed it's not a positive experience is it no and again that was a big source of I suppose inspiration is the wrong word here because it didn't necessarily inspire me <laughs> inspire generally has a positive connotation doesn't it but it inspired me in a negative way that when you look at the comment section take any topical or contentious post and you've basically just got tens hundreds of comments of people at either side of the spectrum slandering one another and talking with such a high degree of confidence i really struggle with that concept of how two people can view the same thing and be so convinced that the other person is wrong and don't seem to be able to look at themselves and then go well hang on maybe it's not as cut and dry as this you know because everyone's got evidence for their perspective as well so yeah yeah it's so true actually I think when we were working on the book, I remember coming across a video and I think it was on the Dodo's Instagram page and it was someone rescuing a cat from a tree. It was like a video of this person, like an arborist climbing this tree and people weighing in on, oh, he should have done this and he should have done that. And it was like, I'm sorry, are you people trained arborists? Do you know the best way to climb a 70 metre tree to rescue a cat? But like people were so angry about it. Someone sent me a meme the other day. It was basically to the tune of... Well, I've spent the last year and a half being a COVID expert or, you know, a virologist or epidemiologist. And now I'm an international relations expert because of the Ukraine-Russia conflict. But yeah, immediately people can just go from being an expert in something to an expert in something else. And I'm sat there kind of going, I don't really think I know anything. So how am I surrounded by all of these experts? Yeah, yeah clearly you're not spending your time, you know, wisely. There's me thinking that I actually spend a great deal of time reading and trying to learn as much as possible. But really, I should just throw my assertions out willy-nilly on comment sections and I'd be much better off. Yeah, I really hope that the book has a positive impact in that sense. And even if it makes a few people question the strength of their assertions and how much they really know about a subject before they decide to weigh in or shout at somebody on Twitter, I really hope it has a positive impact. I hope so. The overarching message is of intellectual humility, which is just to make people realise or question or have a little think about, do I really know this? Do I really know what I'm talking about? Is this really truth? Again, and we can talk about our perception of objective reality or objective truth. Maybe that's a conversation for a different day. Yeah, just to get people to question and think, mm, maybe I should be a little more humble before I start telling the world how it should be. Yeah, I think it's probably easier for us because we come from a philosophy background. And I certainly read philosophy books when I was a kid because my mom gave me philosophy books to read and I named all my teddies after philosophers because I was that weird kid. 
you know, you kind of grow up naturally questioning things and having that curiosity and not just thinking that you know everything. But philosophy isn't something that's taught in schools or maybe even till college and some people never encounter it. I was late to the party myself, actually. So I didn't really start to digest philosophy until mid-twenties, probably. But I would say I've always had an inquisitive and questioning mind, but it was for various reasons, it wasn't channeled into the disciplines that I channel it into now. So I think you had a much better grounding in terms of, you know, my mum my wasn't giving me Socrates to, to study because I believe Socrates is one of your cuddly toys, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I remember you telling me before. So I didn't have that good a grounding in, in that respect. But I think it, I've always been a, not, not quite that kid that used to say why. I wasn't quite that bad, but I've always had that mentality so to speak but I think in schools people might argue that they teach critical thinking and therefore that qualifies it's essentially philosophy I would question how well they actually teach critical thinking particularly of the last five years or so in terms of some of the philosophies dare I say in inverted commas that are quite prevalent now I think they're probably the opposite of critical thinking but that's me being cynical No, I definitely remember being in school and thinking that you're taught a certain way of viewing the world rather than it being more open-minded and observing and analysing. And it's a shame that there isn't more of that in schools. You know, I hope there will be in the future, but I doubt we can probably influence that. Maybe the next book. Yeah, that that is a big part, actually, of things to come in the future. But I almost think that the direction that society is going in, and I could be completely wrong here, but I think philosophers are going to be I'm not qualifying myself as a philosopher. It would be lovely, but it, I'd almost see it as a, an aspiration that I might never reach. I'm happy if that's the case. But I think there's going to be a great need for philosophers. I think people might see it almost as this sort of superfluous thing now that we don't need anymore. But I think with the advent of AI, the explosion of social media, various other kind of really significant things, I think we're probably in greater need of philosophers now than we have been since the Enlightenment, probably. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I know when I graduated back in 2007, in fact, when I started uni in 2004, I remember the lecturer saying to us, philosophy graduates have basically no chance of getting a job. So if you want to leave, feel free. But actually, after I graduated, then there were articles coming out saying that companies like Google were hiring practical philosophers because the skills were so useful. And I think you're right, there's such a big area for applied ethics and the considerations, even with things like COVID, you needed philosophers in there to be weighing up the value of all of these decisions they were making. And I don't think any of that really happens. So I would like to see a bigger role for philosophers in the future. It's funny, I was watching Jurassic Park the other day. I love using movie references and such, as, as you well know. But there was one where Jeff Goldblum is talking to the park owner and he says something on the lines of, you were so transfixed by what you could do that you didn't stop to think whether you should do it. And I think with a lot of the things that we're getting at the moment, there's this neglect of the other side of the coin. Social media, for example, do the costs outweigh the benefits of social media? Probably don't know an answer to that yet. If we don't ask the question, we're never going to know. And I think that's where philosophy comes in, just asking questions. So, yeah, I'm quietly hopeful that there'll be a bigger market for philosophy moving forward than now has been for some time. Yeah, I think there's some really interesting topics out there that need some philosophical consideration, like the whole deep fake video thing. You know, this is something that potentially has really, really dangerous consequences. If they can make politicians look like they're endorsing each other in videos, then 
what could they do if they decide they don't like an individual? You know, it's just like movies that you watched in the 90s sort of situation, like The Nest with Sandra Bullock. It makes me think of what could actually happen. And I just think it is that whole, we can do it, so we will do it, rather than should we actually, is this a good idea? I think there's too much thinking that gets ignored. Even the concept that you can slander people in that way and create situations just because of digital manipulation, for example, that's a scary concept, a really scary concept. You can only trust your eyes to a certain extent, but when that's being chopped out from under you as well, you can barely trust your eyes at all now. The fact that propaganda can still exist in the 21st century, you just think, how is it any different from... 100 years ago, 200 years ago, we're supposed to be a more evolved species and yet propaganda is still as rife as it ever has been. Yes, very true. Well, at least there's lots of material to be writing more books about. (laughs) If I get the time, yeah. Have you got any plans for any more books? I do, yeah. So this newest book is the first of a three-part series. So I've kind of already planned it in my head and I've already got a skeleton structure of each of those books. But it's really coming down to to time. So the whole idea was a series of non-fiction books isn't very common, at least not that I'm aware. I think people like Nassim Taleb has written what he calls... I think he calls it his inserto, his series of books. So for me, I I wanted to do a a series because I just didn't think that trying to do something in one book, there was no way I was going to get it covered or it'd end up being some Bible-esque multiple volumes. I learned a little bit from my last one in that my last book was relatively chunky. And so I've tried to learn a few lessons and think, well, Perhaps I need to make things slightly more digestible, you know, bite-sized chunks. I've essentially laid a philosophical groundwork in the first one. Then the second one, I'm then going to apply it to as many contentious and controversial topics as I can within that volume. And then the third one will be a bit more of a where do we go from here type approach. So I guess you might say, I'm looking at my shelves, you might say it's something akin to Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens Deus and the 21 lessons for the 21st century, something akin to that. Yeah, and I think the idea of a non-fiction series is actually really interesting because if people like your books, they'll keep buying them. And it's a good lesson for non-fiction authors. I think people have this idea that you just write one incredible book and that's it. And actually, the reality is that you don't make a huge amount of money from your books when you self-publish. Or even if you have a traditional publisher, you might not make a lot of money. And it's more about building this holistic author brand that involves various things like a podcast or speaking engagements or consultancy and it's not just about let's write one book and hope to become a millionaire from it I guess the way I view it now is would I still do this if no one ever bought a book now granted there's a cost implication here but yes I would because it's just in me to want to write a book So a big part of it is the legacy that I want to leave behind. Even if no one reads it, at least I know that I've done it. But then secondly, like you were just saying there about for self-published authors, which is hilarious to consider myself now an author, but it's having multiple platforms that work with each other in order to create more exposure more success etc etc I think I would love to just be an author, but it's, it's not a very practical situation to aim for so yeah i think having multiple strings to your bow only benefits you if you want to sell more than five copies to your mum and cousin and friend down the street or whatever yeah yeah have you found that side of things a challenge especially with self-publishing the biggest challenge and maybe it'll be the same for people listening but the promotional marketing side 
is an absolute mountain to climb. It's such a struggle. It's the most off-putting and challenging part of the entire thing. The easy part is writing the book, especially when you've got a great editor. So I think, um, granted, I've got no basis for comparison here, but I'm taking a punt here and saying that you're a fantastic editor, at least from my experience anyway. Thank you. Yeah, that side of the process is just, you feel so alone. I think that's probably the way I would put it. You feel like you're trying to navigate this world of chaos and find a YouTube video here, you find a blog article here, and you'll combine all those things together. But it really is, you know, however long you think it's going to take, times it by five, and then you might be a bit closer to reality. It really is the biggest struggle. Yeah, and I think a lot of authors really underestimate the amount of effort or time or money that goes into the marketing. I think most people are aware that they need an editor or maybe need a designer, but actually marketing is kind of forgotten about. And I think it's the most difficult part of the process because most people don't know that much about marketing, but also we're often not very good at doubting about ourselves. So pushing your book out there often doesn't feel great. At least for me anyway, it doesn't feel like a very natural, organic type of process, Um, particularly because in my first book, I have written about concepts around psychology and the ego and how we pander to it at times and how that might not necessarily be a good thing. And also then in the second book, I'm talking about intellectual humility, not thinking you know more than you do. To then turn around and plaster my book everywhere and say, read my book because it's amazing. It feels so counterintuitive or contradictory. So I really do have a big struggle. I mean this really seriously with the whole push-pull of maintaining some degree of humility and promoting it enough to actually sell any. It's a real struggle. And I don't think I've found that balance yet. I think I'm getting there, but then even to do it the way I want to do it, it takes loads more work in order to make that happen. I could just turn the camera around and talk some nonsense down to my phone and plaster that everywhere, but it just doesn't feel like it's me or commensurate with the messages I'm trying to portray. Of course, and you don't want it to feel disingenuous because one of the big things that people are buying into with nonfiction authors is your authenticity. And if it feels like your marketing messages are completely incongruent with the message you're putting out in your book, then that's going to be a big problem. But I think marketing is trial and error. And there are probably 50 or 100 different ways you could market your book. And it's about just trying a handful of them and figuring out which one of these actually work for you. And there's no point doing it if it's something you're going to really hate. Like if you don't enjoy social media, then don't think you've got to spend all your time on social media trying to promote your book because there are other methods. I've read and taken part in loads of different communities and message boards and various other things about different ideas and a big one that people really push is mailing list but again I think it's managing expectations to say what do you do in order to generate a significant mailing list and that is a book's worth of effort in its own right if you just release a couple of blog posts suddenly you'll get 5,000 people subscribe to your mailing list you know it just doesn't work that way it's more like it might take you a year to write your book and it might take you a year to develop even a fledgling mailing list so I think a big part of this experience is finding out where the goalposts are and managing expectations accordingly but it's a very tough lesson Yeah. And I think actually marketing early is a really big part of it. And a lot of people don't start their marketing until either the point they're ready to publish or afterwards. And then it's just even more of a challenge. Now, I give myself two or three months, which people would say is half as much as what you need. But 
you've got to prioritise in some way, shape or form. And if you're still focused on trying to write a decent book, you either delay your release date so that you can still get that amount of promotional time and you know, marketing time, or you're working on your book because you want to try and get it finished and get it finished to a good standard. So, And then once you have got it finished, there's this urge in you to sort of go, I've been working on this for 18 months. Like, I want to get it out. But yeah, it's really difficult to manage that dynamic. Very difficult. Yeah. I mean, how long did it take you in total with the writing and the whole editing and design process? About 15, 16 months, I think. So I benefited from a lockdown. So I started writing, I say benefited from a lockdown, probably the only person in the world that benefited from it. But all of these authors out there that are getting time to write their books because they've been in lockdowns. I started writing the second one while we were in the first lockdown. So I had a real concentrated chunk of time to get that moving. But yeah, about 17 months and that's all the way through to hitting the publish button. And was that shorter or longer than your first book? Possibly similar, but I had more time back then. I didn't have quite as many things on my plate. So the first one was probably the same. So the writing process was probably a bit quicker for the first one, but the marketing and back office stuff took a lot longer in the first one because I was learning it all for the first time. Whereas second time around, you know, you've learned a few lessons from the previous one. There were various mistakes I made in the first one that obviously I won't make again. And some mistakes that kind of hurt me fairly significantly in terms of sales and reach and publicity and, and those sorts of things. But, but yeah, so relatively similar times, but for different reasons. Yeah. I mean, the good thing is that you do learn a lot by your second book and then by the third book, it's even easier. And by your fifth book, hopefully you don't need so much support. And I mean, my aim is always to do myself out of a job by the time you get to your fifth book. Is that the magic number five? Is it? I think so. <laughs> right, right. I definitely felt for the second one, I was able to provide you with a much better quality product first time round, first submission. The first one, you have no real conception. You've read books, but it no way qualifies you to put some considered thought into structure and whatever else. An editor is just going to provide so much more clarity. But once you've done that once or maybe even twice, the version that you submit as a first draft is never just a first draft version like it would have been originally. It's like a 2.0, 3.0 iteration of the same product because you're using all of that knowledge that you gained in the first one. Yeah. So I think it just speeds up the process, hopefully makes your life a bit easier too. Yeah, because you know that I'm going to be like, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do. It's like a little angel sat on your shoulder or devil, whichever way you want to, <laughs> you want to put both. it. Yeah, yeah, you start second guessing what would Amisha say or what would her advice be about this? So you're able to run through scenarios a bit more in your head. And it definitely helped in terms of segmenting my book into parts and the flow, overall structure. And there are also a few things that through the editing process, you learn what things you're willing to bend on and what things you're not. So there were things I learned from doing the first one in the second one that made me go, I took that advice and for good reason, but actually I think I would probably change it if I could go back now. You respond to everything the editor says, but often you give options, but you can feel as if I should do this rather than stick with what I originally thought. So I think I've been a little, stubborn's the wrong word, but slightly more authentic to myself in this second one. And have been a bit braver to sort of say, you've given some options here, but actually I'm going to stick with that one. 
Yeah. yeah, I think that's a good point. I'd say most authors go with about 90% of what the editor suggests. And that's fine because there are some things that are really important to you and you'll want to keep them that way, regardless of whether it comes across a certain way to readers or it's got to be authentic to you. So it's good. I think by your second and third book, you're a bit braver in terms of what you're not willing to compromise on or not willing to change. I would hate anyone to take this in the wrong way as well, that when you're working with the sort of feedback that you might give, it's never as if you're saying, I think you should do it this way. And I'm then ignoring it and going, what do you know, Amisha? I'm going to crack on with the way I saw it. It's more like you might provide a suggestion that says, okay, with this section here or with this issue, this might make it appeal to more people if you do this. So I've got the option of saying, okay, I could take that and make it more appealing to a wider audience or I could stick with what I'm doing and might happy for a narrow audience. The decision's back on you as an author. So that's invaluable, but it also means that you don't have to take everything that the editor says as that means I must change it. Yeah, it's definitely got to be your choice. And I think that's why it's important to have such a good relationship with your editor, because it has to be someone where you're comfortable getting that kind of potentially harsh feedback from them, but also that you can push back on certain things and say, no, I'm happy with this the way it is. And this is what we're going to go with. But if you don't feel comfortable or confident with your editor, it's quite difficult to do that. It's the initiation of the question is the thing for me that provides the most value. So sometimes you've given some feedback and you've questioned something, either the way it's written or the actual information itself, and it it stops you in your tracks to the point where you then have to go, well, hang on, do I agree? Do I disagree? Whatever. The initiation of that questioning is what's valuable. You might end up ignoring it. You might change it, whatever. But without the initiation of that questioning, you wouldn't challenge yourself to think, you know what, if it's not coming through to the editor then I need to address that. Without that initiation, you wouldn't make any of those changes. Yeah, and I think that's the value of an editor. It's having that sense check of something early on rather than when you've put it out there and you've got really bad reviews on Amazon because everybody's (laughs) misinterpreted you. Yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, you'd have to get some reviewers on Amazon first. (laughs) I'll know where you're coming from, yeah. I know that approach works for some people, doesn't it? Just be as controversial as possible. Yeah, but that's part of the issue I have with people being a bit, or with it feeling disingenuous. You know, it has to be some kind of really shocking title or shocking revelation because that's the only way you're going to get people to follow you or like you or buy your book. But is that the way that we want to live? Everything's about shock and awe. Is there ever any middle of the road? Yeah, I think it's probably because 1.78 million books being put on Amazon every year, people are just trying to find a way to stand out. And it is quite difficult to do that, especially if you don't have a platform as an author already. And it goes back to what we were saying about marketing. But on a happier subject what do you think was your best moment in the process of publishing your books it's really difficult again I don't want this to come across negative it sounds as if I'm being really self-deprecating or kind of disparaging about what the writing process is like I'm not I'd want it to be a realistic overview and I'm not going to lie to anyone but at the same time they might be fleeting moments but things like if you do your marketing appropriately let's say going on to Amazon charts for example To see my book next to some really big authors, people that are on my bookshelves and that I've read numerous books of theirs, to see mine next to them, even if it's for an hour or five minutes or five hours, whatever it is, 
that little screenshot that you can take of seeing yours, you know, or even above it, they're little moments that as much as I'm not big on extrinsic motivation, you can't help but enjoy those moments. So that'd be a really big thing. But I think this second one in particular, it was a bit of like an affirmation almost, or it concretized that I was an author. So the first one, anyone can do one. Again, that's not to be disparaging towards anyone else that might choose to only ever do one. But I don't know, the second one just felt like I cemented myself as this isn't just a flash in the pan now. I genuinely take this seriously and I want to be an author and look, I've got two books. So I think that overarching sentiment was probably a big thing for me. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Uh, I hadn't thought about it that way with the second book. It's almost like you've embarked on a career. Yeah, it's like a statement of intent. Do you know what I mean? It says something more than just, I had an idea and I wrote a book. And again, that's nothing against anyone that might choose to do that. Um, (laughs) I might look back in a couple of years and think I should have stopped at one. (laughs) It was a big moment for me to, to keep the journey going so that it wasn't just, you know, a bucket list situation that remains just a novelty. I wanted it to be something more than that. And then the second one really cemented that for me. Oh, that's awesome. And do you feel like it's worked well in your career plans generally? Yeah, I think it's, again, it's all about expectation management. So if you're not a minor celebrity, it is going to be an absolute slog of a journey. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But it's definitely this second one has helped to create more credibility massively helps with marketing just in terms of your own brand as an author or for me as a speaker and a consultant if you've got a book there's a big difference between a book and two books people are like oh as soon as it becomes plural there's this extra kudos that gets ascribed to you so yeah i definitely think it's helped even having things like you've got two front covers that you can put in marketing material it shows back catalog of material and i think that's really really valuable Yeah, and I think it all goes towards building that platform, doesn't it? You know, you've got your YouTube channel as well. Yeah, well, there's nothing on it yet, but (laughs) yeah, but it will be. But it was the second book that's provided the material that is making the YouTube channel. I could have done it on the last one, but I've sort of found my feet and found my little niche now. So I mentioned Nassim Taleb previously. His niche is randomness. My niche is intellectual humility, uh, epistemological philosophy. It's that sort of element. So without this second book, I wouldn't have channeled it in as specifically as what I have done. It was an overarching theme of the first one, but it wasn't a specific context of it, if you know where I'm coming from. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think there are lots of authors who do that. They kind of find their niche and that's what they write in. And you see it a lot in fiction. And I guess with nonfiction, it's a little bit more varied. You have some authors like Malcolm Gladwell, where he's writing on much more broad topics. But I think it can be really good for you as an individual, especially if you're trying to build your credibility to find your niche and where you present yourself as the expert, don't you? And that's when you get invited to do TED Talks. It's tough because I'm essentially peddling the idea that no one's an expert. Yeah, which is is why my marketing is so difficult. So again, it's probably going to be easier for people that are listening. I've made it convoluted by its nature on my own worst enemy in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I say expert in inverted commas. Yeah, I think we're the same. You know, I'm sure I know a lot about nonfiction books, but I still wouldn't call myself an expert because I don't know everything there is to know on the topic. But I think my kind of threshold maybe is do you know more than probably 90% of the population on this subject? And if you can, then pass some knowledge on. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm not then saying that people can't be deemed as an expert. It's really complicated to get over in brief conversation. But just that idea that it's difficult for me to market myself. You kind of have to have a level of self assurance. But that self assurance is, to some degree, the thing I'm advocating against. It puts me in a really difficult position. But doubt there's anyone else that should have the same struggle unless they decide to write the same book as me. So <laughs> if they do, I'll send them your way. You can just go and have intellectual conversations. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Just give them my manuscript. Yeah. That's no, really interesting. I mean, what skill do you feel has been the most important on this whole journey? I would love to say it's the writing itself, but I don't think it is. Now, again, I don't want that to come across badly because it's the most important for me personally. But in terms of to go to your question there, in terms of this entire journey, it's the marketing and the Amazon algorithm keywords category word you know all that sort of stuff that's probably the most significant because ultimately if no one ever finds your book the saying that I often give to people is I could have written the best book the world's ever seen but no one gives a shit because no one knows who I am do you know what I mean so unfortunately it diminishes or can seem like it diminishes the art of writing itself which I value massively and I know you do as well But for self-published authors and for me personally, the biggest, most significant part of the journey has been learning the rest. Stuff that I didn't want to do and have no desire to do whatsoever. I don't want to be my own publicist, but it's just part of the gig. Yeah, I think it's the biggest challenge in self-publishing, isn't it? And we've talked a lot about traditional publishing versus self-publishing, haven't we, over the past few years. And I think it's one of those where self-publishing is incredible because it's opened the floodgates for anyone anywhere to publish a book, regardless of whether they've got a particular background in writing. And I think in some ways it's been absolutely brilliant. And obviously I have to say that it's kept me in a job, but, you know, it also has its challenges. And I don't think there's necessarily a great way to overcome those at the moment. And it may be because it's still a relative new industry it's probably only been the last 10 years that self-publishing has really taken off and maybe there will be these incredible book marketing companies that pop up with publicists for self-published authors but at the moment it's very much all on the individual and also it can be very expensive technically it's free isn't it you can whack a book on Amazon tomorrow and not pay a penny but in reality if you want a book that looks professional and looks as good as something that Penguin would put out there and sounds professional then you've got to pay for editors and designers and proofreaders you can't just put it up there and do it all yourself and think that it's going to be the same standard as something that a traditional publisher would put out there yeah and and that's why when people have said to me in the past you know how difficult was it to write a book and I, I struggle to answer because on the one hand I say well look anyone could write a book you could write a short story tonight and publish it on Amazon tomorrow and people could purchase it it could be in their post box in 72 hours but it doesn't mean it's any good now again I'm not suggesting that mine's any good either but there's a certain degree of commitment and attention and follow-through that I think is required like paying for your services paying for designers all those things that you mentioned previously so it's not cheap at all but it's one of those that you have to make a decision do you want to do something that you're proud of or do you just want to do something If you just want to do something and you want to write a book and be a published author in in inverted commas, yeah, 
a night, a weekend or whatever, and you could have a book. And there are loads of YouTube clips of people doing that sort of thing. But if you want something, like I said, that is your legacy, you know, this is a genuine attempt at creating, like you said, something that Penguin would do. I remember when I was first figuring out, I was about halfway through writing my first book and I spoke to a hybrid publisher. I don't know if anyone would have come across these previously, but it's, they're not a vanity publisher but they're not a traditional publishing house as well. They're this, in their words, hybrid. They're this halfway house. Yeah, you pay a bit and they pay a bit. You would pay them more than, let's say, I would pay you, but they would throw in marketing, editing, design, all of those things together. And the woman that I spoke to, she was a lovely woman, but she was quite disparaging about the self-publishing world, the self-publishing market. She said things like, you can spot a self-published book a mile off. And at the time, I didn't have any basis for comparison. So I just took it on face value. So I was reticent to go down the self-publishing route. But then really, it was finances that led me down that path. But then once I did my first one, and I'd worked with you for a long time, I actually met someone that had published through her, and I read their book. And it's a good job that you can spot a self-published book a mile off because, you know, it gave the impression that that the standard of those books was going to be that much higher. And it really wasn't whatsoever. They kind of churn out in machine-like fashion. The topics are different, but they might as well be the same in terms of structure, layout, size, whatever. There's nothing authentic about it in in terms of from from the author. But she was really disparaging about self-publishing. So it was almost there. I want to try and prove that wrong. Can I create the sort of product, like you said, that Penguin would produce, but through myself and through the selection of relevant people and their expertise? It was a mission, but it's definitely doable. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it's sad that people still have that opinion. And I think what they're talking about is self-published books where the author has done it all themselves. And I will be honest, I can spot a self-published cover that the author has created themselves a mile away because they just don't know about cover design. And that's not in a harsh way, just in a, you can tell from the fonts or the colours they've chosen because so much goes into choosing a cover. You know, it's a piece of marketing material and you've got to have the knowledge of genre standards, even down to the colours that are used in your genre so it doesn't confuse the reader. And modern fonts and everything about that and I think a lot of authors just don't have that knowledge but I think the issue with companies like vanity publishers and hybrid publishers are yes you're paying money for someone to potentially edit design your book and all of that but you're not choosing those people yourself you're hiring a company but you're not picking the individuals that you connect with and that resonate with you and that understand your vision I think for less money you can self-publish you can pick your own freelancers hire the team that you want you keep complete control of it and you're still ending up with the vision that you had in mind. And I think people don't realise that that necessarily is an option. You know, they kind of think, oh, it's either try and get a traditional publisher or go with a vanity publisher because they're offering a deal or just pay this company to do it. But actually, yeah, you can go and find the fantastic team if you're willing to just invest a bit of time into browsing some freelance platforms to find the right people for you. I don't know what the traditional publishing world is like because I've got it secondhand from a friend of mine who is a traditional published author. So he's given me some insight, but yeah, I don't know personally what that world is like. But just to echo the things you said there, 
the control you have while in some ways it's a bit of a poison chalice because nothing happens unless you do it and you're the only one making the decisions and you've actually got to go and find those people you've got to spend the time getting to know your designer can you work with them can you not your editor can you work with them can you not so in that regard it's a bit of a challenge in itself but I can look at my own book on my own bookshelf and think I've agreed suggested planned written every single part of that product there it's not vicariously mine in terms of like it might be with a hybrid publisher. They had a rule. They didn't want anyone's book to be more than 45,000 words long because it impacts readability. And I'm like, well, I've got more to say. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Little things like that, like little rules that these people have churn out yeah. in this mechanistic fashion, these books. Yeah. But yeah, ultimately, so- they're making their money from authors and not from readers. And I think that's where the kind of ethical dilemma comes into it. Because if as a company, whether you're a vanity publisher or a hybrid publisher, if you're making your money from the author, then what incentive is there for you to produce something that's really high quality? Because ultimately, it doesn't matter to you whether readers buy it or not. And I can see why companies would then just have this, well, let's just get as many authors on board because that way we'll make the most money. Whereas actually, it should be about what's the highest quality product that we can put out there and that we can be proud of as a company. You know, like all the authors we've worked with, we're really proud of those books because they're fantastic. And whether anyone defines them and reads them is another matter. But if we're not proud of it as a company, then I wouldn't be doing this. So I think it goes down to it. As you said, you've got to be proud of it as an individual, but also you would hope that your editor and your designer are proud of what they've helped you put out there as well. I'm pretty sure in a difficult position that if I suddenly turned into a minor celebrity tomorrow and I got a traditional publishing contract, they would have their own editors and I'd be like, well, what about Amicia? Do you know what I mean? So I'm not going to lie and say that it doesn't come with its own challenges. If someone were to offer me a significant enough contract as a traditional publisher that meant I could sell a million copies, you know, you'd be hard pressed to go, no, I'm, I'm going to stick with being a self-published author and continue to grind away doing a few Instagram posts. But yeah, the joy you have of being able to be in control of these things and do it because you believe it is in the service of the people that read it. There's a different mindset, I think, that goes with it. Yeah, I totally agree. But I mean, like everyone we work with, I think they all have this innate desire to just put something of value out there into the world and to genuinely help people improve or to change their lives or to just give them a new perspective on something. And I personally think that's really valuable. But my final question if you had one piece of advice for an aspiring author what would it be i'm torn between a couple of things you can have two yeah okay well one would be the management of expectations and that's kind of a strap line that covers a multitude of things so in terms of how long it takes to write definitely how long it takes to edit so when you get a first draft back when you get your first edit back it is a real rabbit in the headlights moment because you've poured your heart and soul into something for however long it's taken and then someone has I'll kind of egg this up a little bit torn it to pieces it's really tough because it's tough to compartmentalize everything that's coming in so you said to me when you sent it back I sent my first one back to me you know take a week or take two weeks or whatever to, to digest this because I'm quite uh you know on the front foot, get on it type of individual and I want to crack on, I was like, nah, no, 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 you know, I'll just get on it straight away. And it was nigh on impossible for me to do that. So things like how long it takes to edit and definitely how long it takes to market something, just manage your expectations way, way further down the line than what you think. Even if you're being kind of quite generous, like 
be more generous would be the would be the thing. And then the other would be focus on making it the best product you can, but without it turning into a laborious task. So you still try and keep the inspiration, the passion, whatever, as the main focal point. You need to draw the line somewhere as to say, okay, I can't keep tweaking this anymore. And if you read people like Matthew Saeed, his black box thinking, he talks about get your product to market sooner rather than later. But there's a fine balance between those things. So I think try and make it as good a quality as you can, but draw the line. And in doing so, ensure that it doesn't become a laborious task and it's still something that you enjoy doing. If it stops being something you enjoy doing, that's probably when you should stop in general. Oh, I completely agree with you. And I think it's scary putting it out there, but there's the risk that you can just go back and forth with your editor just saying, but can you just check this? And can you just, I'm just going to change this. And I've worked with a few authors like that. And there comes a time where I'm like, just publish it. Otherwise, you will be going back and forth forever and there will always be something that you could have done better or that you look back and go, oh, I should have done that a bit differently. I've had to do that a lot. So with the first, but again, so even though you have a proofreader, you have a typesetter, you have a cover designer, you have an editor, my first book, and stupidly so, but my first book I found as people were reading it, and I think I had a fair amount of goodwill that I've probably exhausted now. You know, a lot of people were reading it in the first few weeks and they would send me messages saying, oh, Jim, I've spotted this on page four or on page 56. It says this and there's a misprint or whatever. So I ended up then having to keep updating the copy. But that means you have to keep going back to your typesetter to redo the entire thing because it can offset the entire layout of the book. So I was doing those as and when they came, whereas now I do it in batches because it costs you each time and all this sort of stuff. So you still need to appreciate that there are maybe a few tweaks that you don't just put it out into the ether and it sits there forever. You might still need to update some things, but that's okay. Like it's okay that I ended up purchasing about 40 author copies and then found that the running header of part four and the conclusion all said part one. So I've just bought 40 copies and they're all uh, incorrect. But no, do you know what, actually, that kind of goes full circle back to the beginning that talking about this kind of humility thing. One of the things that I always notice in the publishing industry is it's almost like typos are a crime. People see typos as this mark of you didn't put any effort in or didn't hire a proofreader or your book must be awful. And actually, typos used to be a celebrated thing. So Back in the day when things were properly typeset using plates and, and everything, and it was too difficult to just reprint the whole book when you found one typo, they would have a page of errata at the back of the book, and it would just have anything that had changed or any typos. And it was almost like a celebrated thing. People had found these and they were improving the book. And I think it's almost sad now that we see it as such a heinous thing if there's a typo, but we're human beings. We're going to miss things, you know. There's not a book in the world out there that doesn't have a typo in it. I think we could all just be a bit more humble about typos and just be like, do you know what? It just shows that we're human. Well, I see them in Penguin books and in everything else. Probably maybe one a book or yeah. one every couple of books, something like that. But for self-published authors out there, they'll have a team of what, three, four proofreaders, maybe more possibly. I don't know how many kind of iterations it will go through before it eventually gets published. So when you've got to pay for everything that you get, you have to draw a line again to say, okay, I've paid a proofreader. You almost go, well, okay, that, that, that's, that's enough now. If they miss something, you miss something between the three of you, you, your editor and your proofreader, 
if it were a normal publishing house, they'd have double, triple the amount of people working on it. So the fact that a couple of typos have crept through, like, big deal. Like you say, I think to deem that as some kind of failure is the wrong way of looking at it, I think. Yeah, I find it really sad, actually. Like, I can forgive a few typos in a book. I can't forgive this book has a terrible structure because you didn't hire an editor. And yet people are kind of more bothered by the typos than they are by the fact that the book's inherently awful or just has no value to it. I read all the ones I said that came from that hybrid publisher. The author had made some citations, made some references, you know, some superscript references in the first chapter or so, first chapter and a half, something like that. And in total, it was like four or five. And obviously in nonfiction, depending on how you're writing things, narrative, nonfiction versus whatever, you might have more or less of those. I've got a lot in my books, but there were four or five And it's as if after the first two chapters, they just stopped referencing. So there were tens of situations where it was relevant to put a citation, put a superscript notation in there, and they just stopped doing it. And this is one of the publishing houses that are like, we can spot a self-published author from a mile out. I'm thinking, well, you only bothered going through what you might call rigorous publishing processes you stop doing it after the first two chapters and just let that person carry on. At what stage do you turn around and go, sorry, but the end of your book now, your notes section, there are five citations. Chapter one, chapter two, nothing. And they all come from the first two chapters. That's a bit of a problem, is it not? Yeah, and yet people will be more offended by a typo. By a typo, yeah. It's a crazy world. Isn't it just, isn't it just? Yeah, they're the sorts of things that drive me a bit crazy. But then again, it's up to us now, isn't it? You've got the choice how much work and effort you put into these things and like you said cover designers as well can i give a shout out to my cover designer please please do yeah yeah vanessa mendozi you can find her on reedsy that's pretty much the only way she does business is through reedsy but a wonderful wonderful designer and so fast but the quality that she produces is so excellent so if vanessa if she does end up hearing this i do try and sing her praises as much as possible and obviously hopefully if people have come to this as a self-published author they know of you but I would just echo the same thing. I was astounded by the level and quality of information that I got from my first edit in particular. I think it was well above and beyond what I paid for. Oh, well, I'm glad. I like to exceed people's expectations, but no, it's been so fun working with you on these books. And I feel like I've learned a lot, which is obviously a major benefit of what I do is learning from every book. But yeah, I really look forward to seeing your future books and thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, yeah, all the best to the bookshelf. It's a brilliant company that I just think anyone that's looking to self-publish, I've not found anywhere that would satisfy those needs better than what I get from you guys. And as a result, I'll never go anywhere else unless I get that yeah. million dollar contract from the traditional. And then I'll drop you like a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, I'll literally be shouting from the rooftop. So yeah. I'll be like, we worked with this guy. He's famous now. He's famous, yeah. oh, but honestly, your books are absolutely brilliant. So I definitely recommend everyone to go out and buy them and And spot the typos send the typos in but yeah also have a little bit more intellectual humility themselves thank you very much yeah oh thanks jim we can't wait for you to join us as we talk more about writing self-publishing and self-improvement on this podcast and we'd love to hear from you what tips would you find useful what questions do you need answered You can find us on our website, Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at thebookshelf.ltd. Send us your questions via social media. We'd love to hear from you.
In the next chapter, we'll be speaking to Adam Jones, author of You Are Going To Fucking Die. So unless you really don't like swearing, you definitely don't want to miss this one. The music featured in today's episode is Set Free by Katie Gray, which you can find on Apple Music and Spotify. Thanks for listening to the Better Shelves podcast. We'll see you in the next chapter.